Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. Today on the show... We will, of course, be uh, touching uh, on the coronavirus because it's very important, but we'll also be talking about other things, things lung-related, because today's show is all about some of the gases that you may choose to inhale. First up, we'll be speaking with Professor Paul Miles. Now, we've had Paul on the show before, and the response to him was so positive, we just had had to have him back really quickly. Paul is the head of anaesthesia at the Alfred Hospital, and he's published more research papers than probably EpiPen and I have read in a lifetime. Um, He's uh, parentally curious, uh, and Paul isn't content with merely staying within his medical specialty, which is uh, anaesthesiology. He likes to stray, to branch out, and this morning he'll be chatting with us about a really fascinating project uh, investigating the use of laughing gas, that is nitrous oxide, for the treatment of depression. There really is a load of science behind it, and Paul will be talking us through his study. Ellie Dabchek, not Eli, Ellie Dabchek, oh, I could be wrong. El- Eli. You think Eli. it's Eli, I know. Yeah, we'll check when he comes on we'll the line. check with Ellie when he comes on the line. Is a respiratory and sleep physician at the Alfred Hospital. He's, he, he's also oh, a master of clinical epidemiology, which coincidentally would come in handy during times of an epidemic. And now, Ellie wasn't satisfied with uh, just studying through medicine and becoming a respiratory and sleep physician. He also co-chairs the National Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Guidelines Committee. And of what inhalation product will our respiratory physicians be speaking of today? It's vaping. <laughs> That's right. It's vaping. And in particular, the recent epidemic of lung of uh, no of vaping-related lung injuries in the US in the USA. That was a couple of months ago. Plus, we're going to have some music and maybe we'll dip into the medical journals too. So join me. I'm getting waved at. So join me, Dr. Malpractice and the effervescent nurse EpiPen for the next hour of radiotherapy. But before we do that... Um, I have the great pleasure in also introducing Sophie Wallace, who's joining Paul at the Alfred. And I have to say this is a pretty funky show today because it's a virtual radiotherapy. Normally we have the guests in with us and we... We would have a hug and we would have a chat and a smile, but we're doing all of this over phones. So this is the the new era. For Let's hope it's not for too long. Anyway, Sophie Wallace is a nurse and she is the research manager in anesthesiology and perioperative medicine, Monash University and Alfred Health. She has. Um, uh, she's now working and coordinating a number of research trials at the Alfred Hospital, together with multi-centre research trials in Australia and throughout the world, recruiting over. I thought it was two thousand patients, but it's twenty thousand patients. Twenty thousand patients. Sophie has her wow. hands full. I can tell you. We look forward to seeing what she's going to talk about um, when she's in the room with Paul at the Alfred. That's right, because we are doing interviews over the phone, as you said, um, and. It's weird just us two being in the studio yeah. with like a dim light. <laughs> it's kind of like a cleaned, cabaret show. <laughs> we've cleaned the desks and we've changed the sock on our microphone. I tell you what, Triple R has never looked so clean. Oh, it's fantastic. Indeed. I saw Tim Thorpe out there before um, wiping down the kitchen benches. 
Good on you, Tim. He's a great guy. Yeah. Okay. We're going to head straight into the show. Um, now, we did say we were going to touch on uh, the coronavirus. There's a few things that we just want to talk about. Um, Epi? Well, one, um, we're calling it the C word now, and uh, <laughs> we don't want to talk too much about the C word, but we do feel a sense of responsibility yeah. just to mention it. To, of course. Because it's out there. But I love this term. So, um, cordon sanitaire which is a French term, um, it's the restriction of movement of people into or out of a defined geographic area, such as a community, region or country. The term originally denoted uh, a barrier used to stop the spread of infectious diseases. So, cordon sanitaire. Cordon, so, so much nicer, doesn't it? Isn't it? it? Everything sounds nicer in French. Oh, cordon I'm with sanitaire. you. So, um, and one, a couple of the things um, Mal practice is going to talk about how we can um, keep healthy um, but one of the things I really want to stress to everybody who's listening is please get your information from credible mm, sources mm, 100%. Australian websites and and look at them regularly but don't go overboard I think we've we're just got we're full of saturation we're at saturation point yeah. at the moment so have a break maybe from um, social media uh, and I think that's a good thing to do um, I am um, I just I, I was sort of obviously consumed with it like most people, I think. And so what I've done is now it's just three times a day, morning, lunchtime and uh, later in the afternoon, I have a look at stuff. If anything super important is like breaks, then somebody will tell me. But otherwise, you can just get your, your head just gets too focused on it. Yeah, yeah. So I just thought a useful website is the Department of Health yep. and Human Services, Victoria. Uh, uh, if you go Google Department of Health, uh, Victoria and slash coronavirus, it's on the front page. There is a dedicated phone line, line mm-hmm. 1-800-67- Five three nine eight, but I am aware that there is uh, a wait time on that. You've got line. some other websites as well, do you? Um, um, Epi? Because what we could do is put them up on our um, yeah, Instagram page. Yeah. Um, and don't forget, if you uh, look on Instagram and you, what's our, what, what are we, we're called radiotherapy, aren't we? Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> go to go to our Instagram and look at uh, look for radiotherapy. Just a few things, and these are just really really sensible things. And I look, we won't labour them. But, and you've probably heard them a hundred times, but it's good to hear them again. Just make sure you wash your hands with soap and water. It's running water for at least 20 seconds and um, make sure your hands are nice and dry. I notice a lot of people when they dry their hands, they don't really dry their hands. I've noticed True. this. So dry hands. Try not to touch your eyes, nose or mouth. And goodness me, I must do that at least 4,000 times an hour. So I've tried not to do that. You know, obviously cover your nose and mouth with a tissue if you sneeze or sneeze into, a, into an elbow. Um, isolate yourself at home if you feel sick. Take, make sure you've got enough supplies of medication if you've got it. Phone your GP first if you need to have medical attention. They'll tell you what to do. Um, continue with your healthy habits. Exercise, drink water, get plenty of sleep. Um, ah, if you're thinking about quitting, now's the time to quit smoking. And so um, call the quit line. What a good impetus. Yeah. I mean, you know, nice. Good time to quit. Don't wear a face mask if you are well. Buy an alcohol-based hand sanitizer if you can get one. Um, get the flu shot, which should be available in uh, um, uh, April. And uh, shaking hands. Uh, some people prefer just to bump elbows, like like if you better than I did today. Um, there is a coronavirus hotline one eight hundred six seven five three nine eight, which is twenty four hours, um, and that all comes from the Better Health Channel from a reputable internet. Um, uh, source and just one other thing guys you know you're going to hear a lot of rumors a lot of innuendo and the thing is just not to to buy into that stuff it is just go to reputable sources reputable websites these are sort of government endorsed sites believe that 
Can I just give one little? It's not really a government website, oh, but it's no. a YouTube clip. <laughs> oh, yeah. So oh, this is the Italian this grandmother. This is the Italian oh, grandmother's okay. suggestions on coronavirus. While she is a hoot, she gives some really good messages, and it's and it's fun, and it's not um, it's not overly done medically, but it's just a gorgeous, fun thing with lots of information, and, and she we'll, teaches you how to wash your hands. And we'll put that on our Instagram page um, as well. Did, did you see, by the way, the yeah. um, I heard it, I didn't see it, the Italian town of Siena, all the people singing on the balconies <gasps> together. Oh, did you did you hear no, it? No, I didn't. Oh, it's so beautiful. Because they obviously have self-isolated. Yes. And there's, you know, a strong sense of community. And if you've ever been to Siena, oh, it is a really strong I've sense of community. I've been to Siena. And so these, these people on the balcony started singing and they started chorusing this beautiful old Italian song. So it was oh, gorgeous. Divine thing. What? Just one last thing about yeah. your flu shot. Yeah. So, um, Rob, get oh, Mal, yeah. get your flu shot. Five and years we've been doing this. <laughs> Five years. Mal, get your flu shot. Do you know when the flu the flu vaccine's coming out? Early April. Middle middle April. Oh, middle April. So okay. just go and get your flu shot. Best I, best advice I can give. I can tell you, I'm always first in line for the flu shot. You know why? Why? Chapa chap. Chup-a-chup. <laughs> My hospital, they give you a chup chup when you get a flu shot. And you get a little thing on your ID badge that says, I've had a flu shot. So nice. I think it's pretty nice important. One. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. On the, on the blower, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see whether we've got uh, Professor Paul Miles. Paul, can you hear us? Yes, hear you quite oh, well. Oh. Technology! <laughs> we've saved you a trip into Brunswick. I'm <laughs> oh, just fantastic. Um, now, Paul, we've had you on the show before, so you're well-versed with the, uh, the, the, the program, which basically means you could get a question from any direction about anything. But uh, we're going to focus this morning on your study looking at laughing gas and depression. Tell us, how did the study come about? Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's an amazing story around laughing gas or nitrous oxide. We know it's been around for about 170 years and it's got this really vexed history of its own. Yeah. Uh, it's called laughing gas because if, um, you know, if people inhale it for several minutes, they start to feel a bit euphoric and, um, you know, uh, in the distant past at least, so there were actually people having parties with it. Mm-hmm. Now, I would strongly advise against such practices, but it's been a mainstay of anaesthesia um, throughout history. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about it is trying to work out exactly in which areas of the brain is it active. Uh, and why does it cause anaesthesia or euphoria or um, analgesia or pain relief? And it's turned out that, in fact, the pathways in the brain that it works on are similar pathways for people with severe depression. Um, you know, the um, typical antidepressant <clears throat> medications that have been around for probably 50 years, 40 or 50 years, have worked on the serotonin system. Uh, whereas nitrous oxide works on a completely different brain pathway and this different pathway seems to be important in people that have got uh, treatment-resistant or severe depression and that's why we're doing this research. Was, did, did, did the idea come from the ground up as in somebody thought, well, we're going to look at the, the bits of the brain where depression acts and we're going to look at the bits of the brain where nitrous oxide acts and, hey, let's put them together? 
or did it come from somebody trying nitrous oxide for depression and it got better and that led to the study? I, th I think in this case, it was more the former. I think this was based on good neuroscience, um, uh, intuitive thinking by people who are trying to understand the mechanisms underlying severe depression and why um, you know, a substantial proportion of people who have depression simply don't seem to respond to the standard antidepressant medications. And, uh, you know, so, you know, all the genuine neuroscience research, uh, a drug called ketamine, which uh, many listeners would be aware of, yeah. um, was first tried because it works on this uh, same different pathway, the NMDA pathway. Um, and at least in some patients, um, it seems to be very beneficial um, uh, in treating depression in circumstances where all other medications have failed. So this NMDA pathway is the same pathway that nitrous oxide works in. And my interest as an anesthesiologist is that we know that ketamine is, um, you know, not without its own problems, no. uh, including some s certain side effects that really um, sort of curtail use uh, in standard anesthesia practice, but even, I think, in some patients with depression, because it does have some properties that are really not, um, you know, not entirely safe or, or reasonable, particularly for longer-term use. Mm. So nitrous oxide, uh, through, you know, I've done extensive research on literally um, thousands and thousands of patients, has found it to be very safe if given in a controlled way under medical supervision. And even just a, a one-hour administration seems to have an effect on people with depression that can last for at least um, a week or so. Right. So the research we're doing now is seeing if we can give more regular <clears throat> treatments, and we're only giving a total of four one-hour treatments, um, uh, in the research study and then following up patients for a further three or four weeks just to see if, in fact, it has this intermediate beneficial effect. And, and if, that, if that were the case, it would be a real advance, mm. I think, in the care of people who are otherwise really quite desperate mm. um, and having a very poor, poor quality of life. And, and what's the research showing, Paul? Um, how many cases have you done? How are they six months down the track? What, what can, have you got any um, data for us? Well, at the moment, we are in the middle of a really important trial. It is a double-blind, randomised trial to, to make a fair comparison to see if this medication, the nitrous oxide, really does have benefits. We need to study it scientifically. What I can say is that a, a, a research collaborator of mine in the US who did the very first study of nitrous oxide a couple of years ago, um, they did a short-term study looking only at one single one-hour exposure and followed patients out for a week after surgery. And they had quite dramatic effects. Now, that was a really small trial. It was what we call proof of concept. Yeah. But of course, um, you know, anything that's potentially very important or potentially very valuable needs further study. And that's I'm, I'm working with their group right now. Uh, we're basing the, the trial here at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Uh, and we're studying over 170 patients with severe depression. Um, and to date, we've enrolled 60, over 60 patients into the study. It seems to be going really well. Feedback from the participants has been quite positive. Um, but I really couldn't in any way say uh, we have a genuine improvement um, in outcomes or, or beneficial response until we complete the study and do all the, the statistics and so on. Paul, um, can you just take us through what a randomised, <laughs> double-blind, placebo-controlled trial is in this case? Like, what does that actually mean in practical terms? 
Well, I think for me, I mean, I'm a, a you know an enthusiastic trialist in medical research. Um, I, I, I would label the double-blind randomised controlled trial as one of the greatest advances in medicine, yeah. uh, and literally has saved millions and millions of lives across all areas of medicine. So, that, as a as a research design, it's crucially important because what it does do is you get an unbiased, uh, fair assessment of a new treatment uh, compared with a placebo or control group. And unless you randomly assign people, uh, participants, to the different treatment options, you know, a control group or placebo versus this experimental or new treatment, mm -hmm. you might be misled into thinking the new treatment mm -hmm. is better when in fact it's not. Uh, and equally importantly, you might miss side effects or harmful effects um, because, in fact, um, the treatment groups are different in some way. So the randomised controlled trial randomly assigns people by chance, uh, like tossing a coin, um, to being treated with the nitrous oxide or, in fact, being treated with um, a placebo, which is, in our case is just oxygen. Uh, and the patient or the participant themselves don't know which treatment they're receiving, and that's uh, important for us so that we can make measurements of their level of depression without it being influenced by knowledge of the treatment they're in. So uh, that's, you know, crucial to get a high quality um, and unbiased result. Um, and Paul, is it roughly the same dose that you would get at a dentist? So that you... Yeah, yeah it's very similar. We, in fact, uh, evidence to date suggests that we can use even a lower dose, even a dose where the, the person doesn't feel in any way affected or euphoric. Mm. It seems to work either at that subclinical or almost subconscious level. And if that's the case, that would be even more useful because, in fact, it means that people can get this, you know, um, very mild dose in a way that doesn't in any way um, uh, affect their um, thinking and their driving ability and so on. And, uh, if if it is effective at that low dose, then of course uh, it could be uh, safely given by almost any healthcare practitioner, including obviously nurses and others uh, in clinics or, or otherwise. Um, so we, we, we would have a treatment that is incredibly cheap, incredibly safe, and incredibly available. So, so that's the great hope, and that's why this is important. But of course, we can't recommend that type of approach until we have the, the scientific or the medical research evidence to show, in fact, it is beneficial. Now, I probably should say at this point, and it's important for the listeners, that they shouldn't go and self-experiment themselves. If people are feeling depressed or otherwise, um, we do know that misuse or abuse of nitrous oxide is in fact dangerous when used too much or chronically. And, and it really is important that the research we're doing be done under very controlled conditions. Excellent, excellent explanation too. Um, Paul, what if somebody's listening in who knows or is themselves um, depressed and has failed medical treatment or is wanting more information or wanting to participate in your study? How, how would they go about contacting you? Or... Yeah, thanks, Epipen. This is... Um... You know, we are looking for volunteers from the community. Um, uh, it, it's difficult because the people who are depressed, of course, uh, lack enthusiasm and motivation. And, and I really appreciate and am very sensitive to how much it affects their daily lives and, of course, their friends and family. So if any listeners out there, uh, either themselves or they've got a, a friend or a family member who, in fact, 
is de quite depressed and, and isn't responding well or hasn't responded to standard medications, then we would love to hear from them. Um, we are looking for volunteers for the study. As I said, it'll be done under very controlled and safe conditions. Uh, and the whole treatment program is over, you know, it gets uh, one treatment a week for four weeks and then a further three or four week follow-up period. So um, it's here in Melbourne at the Alfred Hospital. If uh, anyone's interested, they can contact uh, the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. Uh, I'll give you a phone number if it's okay. Yeah, do that, Paul, and we'll also put it up on our Instagram page as well. Oh, great. So we'll also, well, I'll give you an email address for that as well, but the number's 9076. Six five nine one. Nine zero seven six six five nine one. That's the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. So you're obviously doing it in conjunction with uh, the Psychiatry Research Centre, and you see it. Yeah, this is really important yeah. because uh, I mean the Monash Psychiatry Research <clears throat> Centre. Um, you know, they're a world class group yep. led by a fantastic professor of psychiatry, um, and and I, of course, have got expertise uh, in anesthesiology and nitrous oxide. So. We want to get really the best team together, and we have got a great team doing this research uh, to ensure that we can do it to a very high standard, and therefore the results can become, you know, really practice changing in the future. And and how many patients do you need for the study, Paul? Well, all up, we need a just over 170. We're working with a group in Chicago in the US. Um, other other great researchers there. Uh, to date, we've enrolled over 60 here at the Alfred Hospital. Uh, we certainly want to get close to at least 100 here in Australia, um, and the rest will be enrolled uh, in the US. So, Paul, just to, just to recap, this is for treatment-resistant depression. This is for uh, people in whom um, traditional treatments or usual treatments uh, have not have not worked. Is that right? That's right. So oh, it's okay. not for people who've had something their first episode or, or already yeah. under some treatment and perhaps have had some response. It's where um, it's either, you know, they have to be at the more severe sure. end of the scale yeah. uh, and have failed, um, you, know, at, you know, at least uh, one proper treatment um, approach, if not more. Yeah. We will screen them ourselves through a telephone interview and sure. see if they're eligible for the study. But, um, yeah, it's not just for anybody with, you know, with, with their first episode of depression or they're feeling, you know, not very sort of happy with life at this stage. It's, it's really, um, you know, we want to get the group where we hope they have the greatest value. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, we, we were just doing reviewing a paper in our journal club, which is something that doctors do. It sounds exciting, doesn't it, journal club, um, this week. And it was a paper in the Australian Journal of Psychiatry. Uh, Royal Australia, uh, you know, the big journal of psychiatry in Australia. I can't remember the name. That's terrible, isn't it? And um, uh, it was about um, looking at uh, having an effective treatment for the first couple of weeks um, when somebody's starting antidepressant therapy. Because if you take somebody who is, um, who is depressed and is started on traditional antidepressant medication, there's usually a two to three week lag before you start seeing clinical effects. And wouldn't it be great, the article was saying, is if in that interim we could actually find something which had an immediate effect and um, you know, if nitrous oxide does turn out to have that kind of an effect, that would be fantastic because people wouldn't have to I guess endure the symptoms until antidepressants start working. <clears throat> Absolutely, and this is one of the reasons we're doing this study and I think this is where the future might where the role of nitrous oxide laughing gas mm. might have its um, central role. It's exactly that, that bridging period where, where 
uh, people who you know come for um, medical care uh, who are severely depressed, but you know they are at high risk of depression uh, of suicide. It's, mm. it's gut wrenchingly tragic for mm. uh, for their families and their friends. Mm. Um, if we can just bridge them, help them through that first few weeks until the the more traditional medications kick in and start working, um, I mean that would be a major advance. And now, of course. At the stage, we're going to label this as hope. It's not yet proven, but yeah. this, this, this is what makes this research so important. Um, Paul, just w one thing you, you mentioned um, about nitrous oxide is it, it does have, I mean, it is very safe. I mean, even I know that as a you know, psychiatrist from my medical student training is that you know, nitrous oxide is a, is a pretty safe uh, anaesthetic, but like all uh, drugs, it has side effects and consequences. Could you just run us through what some of the potential side effects and consequences are? Yeah, and this is, I think, very, very important. You know, I also worry about misuse or, yeah. or, or recreational use of, of these sorts of drugs. Um, I, I, can, I can assure uh, your listeners that if used, um, at, you know, outside of the medical setting, uh, recreationally and particularly with chronic exposure you, you you will definitely get serious side effects that mm. may not be reversible so i really must emphasize that um the nitrous oxide uh, laughing gas uh works uh, on some um, chemical systems in the body that are related to the metabolism of vitamin b12 and folate so they're they're important you know vitamins of course for being healthy and it blocks those those pathways and therefore you can get damage to red blood cells uh, but even more importantly to peripheral nerves and the spinal cord and the central nervous system mm. and and some of that um, could be permanent so leading even to nerve damage mm. and even paralysis and, and that is more likely in vegans you know those that mm. might have low mm. folate or vitamin b12 levels mm. uh, or those with very poor diets so that's the downside. Uh, that only occurs with, re with prolonged or repeat exposures. Mm. Uh, and that's why recreational use really is dangerous. Now, I, having said that, un under, medic under medical conditions done in a controlled way, mm. we know that it's incredibly safe medication. But um, that's the difference. And it's like, as you mentioned earlier, um, all medications are incredibly valuable uh, in in healthy living and medicine, but if used incorrectly or at high dose, uh, they, they will all cause harm, and that's um, that's why we go to medical school. Do, do you know, Paul? Um, I, I still have an image from uh, years ago of seeing somebody who uh, had—is uh, it called subacute combined generation of the cord, where they get this neurological phenomenon from uh, yeah. overuse and misuse of nitrous oxide, and it left a very indelible impression uh, on yes. me. So, uh, yeah. as you point out. Very safe when used under the right conditions. Under the wrong conditions, uh, not so good. Paul, um, whilst um, we've got you on the phone, we know that you're standing next to Sophie. Is that right? That's right. My research manager. Now, um, we're very keen to talk to her. Would you mind putting her on the, on the blower? Yep, she's right here. Okay. Hi, Sophie. <laughs> good morning, Happy Good morning. Good um, would you like to tell us one of your favourite projects that you're coordinating at the moment a little story about um something that you're passionate about is is there one that you could off the top of your head yeah so at the moment we run a lot of research trials here at the alfred that um span around the world but um one thing i'm looking at now is looking at 
trying to involve consumers or members of the public to help us um, write our research plans oh. and help us do our trials um, and trying to get more a community or uh, engagement in our research. Excellent. That is, we're both, yeah. both our jaws have dropped and we're both thinking, wow, that is just such a, it's it's amazing it's sort of taken till now to even think that's a great idea, but what a great idea, Who, was, whose idea was that? Uh, it's basically uh, been done around the world, so in yeah. the UK they're quite, um, I suppose, forward from Australia, yeah. but a lot of the granting bodies around Australia want mm. a lot of consumer engagement yeah. and want to increase it, mm. so it's a lot from, I suppose, the funding bodies within Australia. So, and, and how does it work? Are they suggesting studies or are they helping you um, do the consent form or what, what does that mean? Um, basically, at the moment, I'm trying to prioritise what people in Australia feel are important. And that's not just patients or carers, but also um, healthcare workers. Uh, and put it all together to try and understand what is important to uh, people in Australia, what would they like researched? Mm -hmm. uh, what are questions they would like answered? And what do they think is important? And is and this the basis of your PhD? Yes, it is. It's the first part of my PhD. And I'll, uh, from gaining, I suppose, 10 priority questions in Australia, we can then write proposals um, and suggestions to, I suppose, um, back up our research so when we're looking at research, um, we can identify what, what other people have found important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Oh, that is just so brilliant. Are you allowed to talk about any of the things that have come up or is that kind of uh, under embargo? It's, at the moment, I, we're still out in the community. There's a Facebook group going around with the Health Issues Centre hmm. in Victoria and they're trying to get more... I suppose consumer engagement from Australia, yeah. um, and I suppose the important thing is the study's looking more at the anaesthesia and surgery side, perioperative medicine. So there's a lot of consumer groups for different chronic diseases, mm. but there isn't so much for just the patient coming in to have an operation. Mm. And the whole experience of the operation, or predominantly focused around the anaesthetic? Uh, no, predominantly. Uh, pre-op assessments, uh, the pre-op knowledge, all the way through to um, recovery after surgery, um, anaesthetic recovery, and just uh, the quality of their life and recovery after the surgery. Mm. Wow. Yeah, really good stuff. I'm so, just, I mean, I, know, I, I won't keep harping on about it, but I'm just totally blown away by this concept of actually having um, uh, consumers uh, involved right at the ground level when you're designing a study. Uh, that's just fantastic. I mean, can you, from around the world, have, have you, are you able to tell us any any sort of studies that have, have worked that way or have, have, have produced sort of uh, results which are quite chain, which will change policy or procedures? Uh, well, at the moment, one of our cardiac trials that we're running in Australia um, is sort of initially came from a group in the UK Yep. Um, and that was where the patients came in and decided that they uh, discussed what they thought was important to them. Yep. And I think that it's all about sort of quality of recovery and how we 
um, find endpoints that are relevant. Yeah. So a lot of those patients decided they wanted to know how many nights they would be sleeping in their own bed at home within 30 days after surgery. Oh, that's the sort of stuff you don't think of if you're a doctor or a nurse help. or, well, speaking for nurses, but you know, as yeah. a doctor, I wouldn't be thinking of that. I'd be thinking of the anaesthetic. And, and, and um, yeah. so if, is it um, qualitative research? It's both. Both, both. Qualitative and qualitative. So I will be looking for so volunteers in the community to come and help me with surveys or questions and also to formulate a group here at the Alfred you know what we'll we do? can use to help us in further trials and understand, uh, have them sit on, I suppose, uh, committees or steering groups of our research. Sophie, what we'll do is um, we'll get some contact details for you of uh, uh, perhaps the Facebook group and uh, phone numbers and, and so forth, and we'll put them up on our Instagram page, which is, if you go to Instagram, you're looking for radiotherapy, that's us. Look, thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you so much, uh, Paul. That's uh, Professor Paul Miles and Sophie Wallace from the Alfred Hospital and uh, Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre. They are doing some fantastic work. We could have spoken to them for like three hours. Yeah, in fact, I we've gone ten minutes here. over. I wish they were here. I wish they were in the studio, but maybe we'll get them in in a couple of... Down the track. Down the track, and we can sort of really have a great chinwag with them. If Look, the last segment has brought up some issues or concerns for you. Don't forget the... Brilliant people at Lifeline are always there. Uh, anytime, then the number is 131114. That's 131114. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. On the line, we have Dr. Uh, Ellie Debchek. Ellie, are you there? Good uh, morning. Good morning. Now, just tell us, is your name Ellie or Eli? It's definitely Ellie. See? Yeah. Get... I, I gave up correcting people many, many years ago. Oh, oh so you accept Ellie and Eli? I, I reluctantly accept Eli. Oh, no, <laughs> please don't. Just keep correcting people because that's your name, Ellie. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 when I was young, it really got to me, but it, I've, I've, I've been worn down. Oh. He's not precious about his name like, like yeah. me and you. No. <laughs> so, Ellie. Ellie. So, Ellie, you're a respiratory physician, which means you look at lungs, yeah? Indeed. Um, and uh, unlike a lot of your uh, other uh, colleagues, you don't have a medical procedure. <laughs> well, we have a bronchoscopy, but they're very few and far between. You need to be pretty sick. Yeah. to get a bronchoscopy. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do a lot of your work with real clinical skills, like listening to, to chests and taking histories. Um, yes, but without a CT scan, oh, we, can be, uh, okay. we can be in a little bit of a pickle. <laughs> okay. okay. I was building you up, mate. Now, um, you've got a particular interest in vaping. Tell us, tell us, just first of all, for those who don't know what vaping is and the different types of vaping, just take us through it. So vaping's been around for many, many decades, but it really hit the mainstream probably around 2005 when it was first marketed. Um, It's an electronic, generally battery-powered device, and it contains a liquid, originally nicotine, but these days just about anything, and that liquid is heated to create a vapour, which is then inhaled. So 
the new word or the new verb, I should say, vaping, is the act of inhaling the vapour that's been produced by the said e-cigarette. And what exactly does it do to the lungs? Is it similar to, to nicotine in cigarettes or is it a different chemical pathway? The, look, whether you speak to an advocate or a, 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 I suppose, someone who's a bit anxious about it, but the first thing they'll tell you is we don't really know because there is no long-term data. I mean, if you look at traditional cigarette smoking, it took hundreds of years to get convincing data linking lung cancer and cigarette smoking. Mm -hmm. There's emerging data suggesting there is an association with lung disease, but it's very early days. So there's no good answer either way at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for that reason, I think people have made the false assumption that it's, it must be safe. Mm. Mm, mm. And, um, and why and would somebody take up vaping? Is it a fun thing to do? Well, the, the vaping in young people, and we've got much, much better data from America than we do from Australia, mm. but there's the, the US Surgeon General calls it a vaping epidemic mm. amongst young people. Um, if, if you go back to 2011, 1.5% of high school students in America vaped. Um, 2018, that's jumped to 21%. You're joking. Whoa. Well, it's like a... a, 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 a hang on. It's a, yeah, fifth. Well, a fifth. A fifth. The, the 2020 estimation is 25%. Um, and the use of cigarettes amongst the same cohort, so US high school students, has dropped from 16% to 8%. That's a good thing, yeah? That's a great thing. Mm. But if you look at the combined use of tobacco products, so that includes both traditional cigarettes and vaping, mm. we've jumped in that seven-year period from about 20% to about 27%. So okay. the concern, the US General articulates this extremely well. The basic concern is we're, we're developing a new generation of nicotine addicts. Mm. Mm. And this sort of shot to prominence August, September last year, um, it, we, there wasn't much in the Australian press. There were a lot of articles in the New York Times about this emerging lung disease that was killing young vapors. Mm. Mm, tell us about it. So they've, they've coined it eVali, electronic or vaping-associated lung injury. eVali, yeah. eVali. Fast forward to October, and I was lucky enough to find myself in New Orleans at a respiratory conference. And that was in the, at the height of the epidemic. And they had a, an, a breakout session where the CDC lead researchers and the clinicians involved in treating a lot of these patients presented their data. And it looked at... We, we now know since then that almost all of these people were young. They were vaping um, marijuana-containing devices. Mm. And they were almost all obtained through what the literature calls informal channels, which we would probably call drug dealers, mm. rather than purchased in uh, marijuana dispensaries. And in the end, they had 2,500 people in hospital oh. and about 52 or 54 died. Gee. And uh, that really... That was that was there was an explosion in publicity across the US and to a lesser extent here. Mm. 
about the dangers of vaping and that brought attention to this extraordinary rate of vaping among US high school students. It, we, I, I need to add in quickly that we no, have not seen it. a single we have not seen a single case in Australia. So is there was there a dose um, response to that? So were mm. these people vaping a lot versus one or not necessarily. The it took a while, but the it's fairly certain that the causative agent was a um, a filler or a dilutant called vitamin E acetate, which seems to have contaminated many many batches of these um, uh, sorry marijuana containing. Uh, capsules or liquids that are used in the e-cigarette and that was a new finding because they went back 12 months and looked at older batches and they did not contain this um, vitamin E acetate. Mm. So was that added, the vitamin E, I mean if you speak to the informal channels, was that vitamin E added uh, for a reason or was it just kind of just fell into the mix? I think it's added as a filler as in it it makes up volume and it's thought to be a preservative. Right. Um, and that, I suppose, it speaks to the dangers of smoking something yeah. that we don't really know anything about. Um, anecdotally, this has not been a deterrent. Mm, sure. um, yeah. Speaking locally, yeah. amongst my non-medical friends, they laugh at me when I tell them this story. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, you, do you think, um, do, do people know the mechanism of injury with this vitamin uh, E additive? Like, did it cause an inflammatory response? Did it cause the lung tissue to decay? What, I mean, what's the mechanism yes. of injury here? Yeah, all of the above. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a severe inflammatory response. Um, it appeared to be somewhat responsive to corticosteroids or prednisolone. Yeah. Um, but as I said, several cases died despite um, best care. Yeah. Um, even, even some cases going on to lung transplantation. Jeez. And so what's happened now? Like, has that supply been stopped? (laughs) Yeah, fortunately, it's faded away. Uh, There was a short, sharp rise that faded away probably two or three months ago, Hmm. um, which, uh, you know, we're probably, the doctors in America are probably much more switched on to recognising it and treating it. But I also think the informal manufacturers have wised up to this additive Hmm. And it's probably, and this is speculation, it's probably no longer added. Mm. Mm. Do, do you have any data on um, Australian figures, what's happening here? You said it wasn't too so bad. Got, the only data I can find is older. Um, it's, I've got 2017 data looking at Australian high school students, and that was 13% who reported using an e-cigarette ever, but half of those had never smoked a traditional cigarette so it's it's almost like through cunning marketing celebrity endorsement um very clever social media Mm. a new market for this product has been created Mm. and and um there's a bit of a fallacy about it replacing um cigarette smoking is that there was a story about behind getting off cigarettes to try vaping and that would help you that's yeah that's a unbelievably controversial yeah. question and I'm, I don't want for a yeah. second to suggest I'm a smoking cessation expert um, there was a very famous big trial published just over a year ago from the United Kingdom and they, they randomised 
um, close to 900 patients to traditional nicotine replacement, which is patches plus gum or patches plus inhaler. And they randomised the other group to a particular type of nicotine-containing e-cigarette. And at 12 months, there was a lower rate of smoking cigarettes in the group that were using the e-cigarettes. Mm. So that that hasn't... I mean, that took everyone by surprise and that hasn't been replicated. There are... I understand there's at least one Australian trial underway looking at something similar. Um, when the... When, uh, I want to go back again to the US Surgeon General because there's been a, a lot of very strong statements recently. When, when, when they reviewed the evidence, their conclusion was that there's not sufficient evidence to conclude that e-cigarettes reduce smoking rates. Right. So to make... I think, I think what he's getting at is to make such an enormous change in recommendation, there needs to be more data. Mm. Mm. And, it's... Um, and we, 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 there's also a lot of data, and I can't give you the numbers, that a lot of people will switch to e-cigarettes but continue to smoke traditional cigarettes as well. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a website for some information some, where somebody could go to? to... Um, yeah, the best stuff I've found is if you Google US Surgeon General e-cigarettes, it's a beautifully laid out website with um, a lot of data, a lot of policy statements um, and, and some very strongly worded recommendations. So helpful for a university student, say, in Melbourne that's... Absolutely. Helpful for medical professionals, helpful for um, laymen. It's, it's a really helpful website. And, and what is it again? Oh, the actual website... Well, uh, hey, Ellie, we can, put that up, we can put that up onto our Instagram page Perfect. as well, so if you... Uh, let us I'll know after the show. We will um, we'll put that on. Um, Eli, thank you so much. Ellie. <laughs> well, he doesn't mind. No, he does he deep down. Mind. He what? does. I can tell. He doesn't mind. No, 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 no. I think, so? I think the psychiatrist is right. I've, yeah. I'm, I've come to There you go. Me. Dr. Dubcheck is what we'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for, for joining us on Radiotherapy. It wasn't as traumatic as you thought it would be, was it? It was an absolute pleasure. Oh, and we <laughs> wish you were here. Yeah. And I wanted to really make the journey across town. Yeah. Uh, next yeah. time. Thank next you so time. much, Ellie. We'll, um, we'll uh, be putting that information up on the Instagram page and we'll be chatting with you soon. That was Ellie Dubcheck. He's a respiratory physician. Physician. Oh, physician. Physician uh, from the Alfred Hospital. And um, very interesting information about uh, mm. e-cigarettes in the vaping sphere. Mm. I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about it in the future as, as uh, research studies conclude. So you have been listening to... Radiotherapy. Um, it's the uh, show's drawing to a close, and EpiPen and I are going to saunter out of the studio for another week of work. Um, but it has been fun. We uh, we spoke to Professor Paul Miles and Sophie Wallace about really interesting studies looking at uh, what's it um, in anesthesiology, anesthesiology, uh, and nitrous oxide and depression. And we'll be putting those links up onto our website. We also had a chat to. Well, just between ourselves, really. Yeah, bit of a chit-chat. Bit of a chit-chat. And we didn't mention the C word much. We didn't mention it much except uh, for uh, just always go to reputable sites, which are the government-endorsed sites in Australia. That's where you're going to get the best information. And we'll be putting those links up onto our Instagram page, which we've been No photos. 
No photo. Just pictures of you and me. We'll take take a selfie. Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.